Please turn with me in either your own Bible or the Pew Bible there in front of you to Exodus chapter 20. And that in the Pew Bible uh, is there beginning on page 61. This is Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read uh, verses 1 to 21. This is God's holy and errant word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within the, your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord, and we thank God for it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. And while you record here these words that you specifically spoke directly to your people. We know that all of the scripture is your word and that you have given it to us out of your grace so that we aren't left alone, groping about, not knowing or being known. But you, in your grace and your great love for us, have, have spoken to us. You've revealed yourself to us that we might know you and be known by you. And so we thank you and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us. Help us to understand these things. That we might truly know you and live as you have called your people to live. We pray all these things, Lord Christ, in your name and for your glory. Amen. I read that whole section, 1 to, to 21, but let me focus our attention now on verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. As we look at this that we talk about as the second commandment, right? we've, we've looked so far at the prologue, the, the introduction that God gave to the whole of these ten words, and then we looked last week at the first of those words, the, the command to not have any other gods before him. And we come now to this commandment that we're not to have graven images or uh, carved images, or I'll argue the, the better translation is actually idol. We, we, we're grappling with how, how do we understand these things and, and especially because the way that we tend to come to any commandments, and most specifically these commandments, is so twisted and out of whack that it, it oftentimes makes it so that we don't hear what God is actually saying at all. Because we've got all these preconceptions and all these other things. And so more than anything else, what I want you to hear from God's word this morning is that these commandments, these prohibitions, these things that God tells us about how we are to properly worship him and him exclusively are issues of his incredible grace. That we completely misunderstand the law or the teachings of God. When, when we look at them as burdensome, when we look at them as God is giving these things and, and he's, he's up there in heaven waiting for us to step out of line because after all, he really gave us those kinds of commandments just to give himself an excuse to, to whack us. It's not at all what the scriptures are teaching or why God has given us these things. He tells us how we are to worship him and how we are not to worship him, similar to the way that, that a loving parent would, would correct a child who, who wasn't eating good, beneficial things. And, and we're not just talking about, you know, okay, you, you can't have a third bowl of, of fruity pebbles or, or whatever. That's, that's, that's too much candy. But, but the image is much more as kids who are scooping up gravel and chewing rocks. And, and as a result, their, their teeth are breaking. Their, their mouths are bloody. They're, they're swallowing things that then take that hurt and destruction down into them. And then not only chewing gravel, but then washing it down with some diesel fuel. And, and if you saw someone doing that, uh, if, if you had any interest or care for them whatsoever, say, whoa, 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 no, no. That's not what we're supposed to eat. That, that's not what we're supposed to drink. Well, so you say, no, no, really. It will destroy you. God here is showing us, teaching us, telling us, no, honey, don't, don't eat that. Here's bread that I've baked for you to eat. Here's water for you to drink. It, it's not just any water. It's pure water. These are things that are good for you, that will aid you, that will give you life, that will give you the strength to enjoy life together. Whereas these other things, death, their destruction, they will tear you apart. But we simply don't believe him. 
and want to eat and drink garbage and poison. As we look at this particular word of God, I want us to see, and you'll, if you turn in your outline there in your order of worship, these three points. First, that God prohibits all false worship. And the second, as we've seen, is, is really the other side of the coin, that Yahweh, that, that is the covenant name for God, that Yahweh rightly demands all true worship to be given to himself and him alone. And then third, how Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. So the first thing, we see how God prohibits all false worship. And, and I need to, to just mention here, because I know some of you in, in just hearing the word that, that I read in this commandment, verses uh, 4 to 6, I, we just lost you. Because maybe it was because of, of this talk of God being jealous. And he, no, mm, mm, can't, can't go there. Or, or maybe it was the difficulty of the, the word talking about the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children. He said, no, you can't bring kids into it. That, mm. Can I beg of you, please listen to what God's word says. I understand these are hard things. But they are also essential things. As we go through, I think if we, if we focus on what God actually says rather than our misperceptions of, of what we think God has perhaps said, it will be of great help. So the first thing that we see here is he commands, he gives this prohibition, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. And the, the first thing that when we, when we look at that and, and say, okay, what is it that God's prohibiting? The, the fashioning, the, the carving of of images. But what we understand from the scripture is, is that what he's commanding here is making images for the purpose of worship. Not like the Muslims believe the prohibition against any what we'd understand as representative art. I don't, some of you have been to, to some of the, the countries that are predominantly uh, Muslim, and, and you see there the art is, is very different. You're not going to see the, the Greek or, or Roman sculptures and, and statues, not only of, of human beings, but also of animals or any of those sorts of things. You find in a lot of uh, predominant Muslim countries geometric shapes. It's beautiful, wonderful art. But, but very different in, in not representing people or animals or other living things. And so some people have said, well, that's, that's what the Scripture says here. That must be what it means. But it's not, and here's how we know. The first thing is, is that the term that is used here, pestle, to describe these carved images, it's, it's a term that's used in the Hebrew Bible 30 times. And in every one of those 30 instances, it's used specifically not just of a sculpture or a, an image or something that's, that's carved, because the, the term here is actually the noun form of the verb to carve. It's, it, you might think of it in terms of, of the most... Um, literal sense of it, the, the term here is a carving. It doesn't have the word for image or statue or any, but that's not there. It uses the, the verb of carving in a noun form. The, the, the carving is prohibited. But again, that term, every time it's used in the scripture, is not just any carving. It's not just you're whittling something. It, it's not just a, a statue from, from art class. It is specifically used 
to refer to an idol, to an image made for worship. And that, that the way that it's used in the scriptures is both for an idol as in a false god. So the, the uh, uh, folks in Egypt, right, they had all of their false gods. And they, they often had corresponding idols or images fashioned to represent those so that they had something to put in the temple. But it also has to do with those images that were formed by people in Israel to represent Yahweh. Now, God here explicitly prohibits that. But for instance, in, the, in just a few chapters in Exodus after the Ten Commandments, we find Aaron sculpting, making an, an image of a calf. And all the people give their, their jewelry that they've plundered from the Egyptians to, to show how Yahweh is the victor over, over Egypt and all of those gods. And remember Aaron's great, great explanation of, of how that all happened when Moses says, what are you doing? Well, I, I threw those things in the fire and out came this calf. I, I didn't have anything to do with it, Moses. But oftentimes we think of that calf as an idol of Egypt or an idol of the Hittites or an idol of the Canaanites. No, in fact, what Aaron presents the calf as as a representative of Yahweh. Here, let us worship the God who delivered us out of Egypt. So the thing I want you to, to catch with this is it's prohibiting both the worship of false gods through these images, these idols, as well as it's prohibiting the worship of Yahweh through making any image. It, it's excluding all of those in worship, not just representative art. We also know this because of the grammatical construction of the command. That the way that this reads in English, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or idol. And, and then you go down after the poetic uh, little interlude as a new sentence. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. But again, the Hebrew doesn't have punctuation. It doesn't have that as a separate sentence. It's actually a causal Phrase explaining the carving, the making of this idol. And, and so the, the sense of this command is you're not to make these sorts of things to be a part of your worship or so that you might worship God through them, either the real God or a false God. The other way that we know that it cannot mean that God here is outlawing all carvings or all images of, of any kind is because God himself commands the Israelites to make images, to make representation of things like pomegranates in the, in the temple. That he commands them to make images, artwork, that was to be in the tabernacle. And that God specifically commands Moses to make a serpent and set it up on a pole to cure the Israelites who would look at it by faith when they were bit by the fiery serpents. And so God cannot say, do not do this at all, categorically. And then circle back around and say, Oh, no, make, make an idol here. Make an image here. Right? So what I'm trying to show is that the scripture, when you read the scripture, it's important for you and us and all of us together to, to look at what the words mean in their context and the way that they're actually given. Things like their, the grammar, things like the words that are used, things like the context, things like the rest of the scripture in Things that are more clear showing the less clear what that means. And so it cannot mean a prohibition of all representative art. So what is it? 
he's prohibiting the making of idols that we might worship them either through giving service and allegiance to false gods or even to use them in worshiping Yahweh. God is prohibiting all of these things as false worship. When we understand what he's prohibiting in this false worship, it helps us fill out what we saw last week with the first commandment of not having false gods before him. That, that these two kind of help us as, as both sides of the coin in what false worship looks like. And so our Puritan forebears, that, that, whose uh, wisdom and working of the Holy Spirit through them has, has helped us down through the generations, understood this and talked about it in terms of what's called the regulative principle. That is, understanding that we as human beings are not free to worship God however we choose. Right? But that God sets very specific parameters for what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And that this is not a new thing that just the Israelites coming out of Egypt were struggling with. This goes back as far as Cain and Abel. In our men's Bible study a few weeks ago, we were talking about this specifically of how it records in Genesis that, that Cain and Abel as brothers both offered God a, 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 an offering. And the scripture tells us that, that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable, that God received it. But that Cain's offering was not acceptable. And, and so we had a lot of discussion of, well, why is that? It, the, the text tells us that, that Abel was, was a farmer, and so he brought of, of his produce. And, and that Cain was, was in livestock, and so he brought a, a, an offering from, from... No, I got it backwards, didn't I? That's what you were saying. Sorry. <laughs> what did I do? Oh, I got it backwards. Thanks. Um, Cain brings grain, Abel brings from the livestock. And, but we're in Genesis. We don't have all the commandments of Leviticus. How do, how do they know what's acceptable, what's not acceptable? And there are grain offerings later on in the scripture. So, so why is it? This, the text doesn't tell us the specifics of this was wrong for this, all of these reasons. But what it does show us is the heart of Cain in the whole thing. And, and that he's ticked off with God for not accepting what he brought. That's terrible, isn't it? It is. Have, have you ever done that? Well, no, Pastor. We, we come to First Congregational Church in Woodstock, not one of those heathen churches. We, we do the right things. Well, I know there are plenty of times where I've done something trying to serve God only to find out that I was completely in left field. Either I didn't know it at the time, or I, I did know it quite well, thanks, but, but didn't admit it, that my heart was not right before the Lord. But there are also times where I've offered something to the Lord that, that he's particularly said I'm not supposed to. Even folks like Martin Luther, the great German reformer, you know, part of his conversion story is heresy. What? Right? Martin Luther is out riding, coming back to the monastery, and there's, there's a violent thunderstorm, and he, he dives for cover and, and says, Lord, save me. If you save me, I promise I'll give my life to you. Now that sounds very pious. Doesn't it? I mean, God, if you, if you do this for me, then I'll, I'll give you the rest of my life. Except the scripture goes on to show us that that's not pious at all. For the first thing, the rest of your life isn't yours. You're giving something to God that's already his. Second, you're trying to bargain with God. Right? Hey, if you do this, then I'll do that. I, God says, I tell you what, why don't you just obey me? always 
and trust that I know what's good for you. And if that's taking you home in a, a lightning bolt, then trust me. Right? All of us do this. All of us devise ways of worshiping God that he's either explicitly said, that's not okay, or that, as we look at the scripture, we find out isn't okay. Or oftentimes, as we mature in Christ, we, we look back on earlier things and think, what was I thinking? That was stupid. That, that wasn't pious. It was pompous. It was self-righteous. But often, we don't do things with the right purposes. And so our, our Puritan forebears often talked about this and looking at these commandments in terms of trying to understand what God has commanded and then obediently and joyfully following that. We've got a, a beautiful example here on the walls. You, you know these, these stained glass windows? Have you ever wondered why there's not a picture of the, the Last Supper or um, Jesus calling his disciples or Jesus uh, calming the, the, the waters of, of uh, the, the lake? Why is it just circles and colors and squares and boxes? Well, that's, that's part of our Puritan heritage that is precisely trying to apply these things. That, that images, even images of Jesus and his disciples, in the worship service can so easily lead us to venerating them. Lead us to, to thinking that that's, that's, that's important holy hardware for us in terms of doing this thing of worshiping Yahweh. But the Puritans rightly understood, no, that... That's not how God has designed for worship to be. He had given specific holy hardware to his people in, in Israel, particularly with the tabernacle and the temple. But, but now he's doing something different, that, that he's building us up into the temple. And his Holy Spirit is now within us, not a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Now, at the same time, I recognize there are a whole lot of difficulties in terms of how we go about applying this. Because you know, the, the Puritans talked about the regulative principle and they had circumstances for worship as, and then elements of worship and, and you can get all kinds of, of debates going on, on those things. But what I want you to see is the principle here that what God accepts in worship is what he has commanded his people to bring in the way that he has commanded his people to bring it. And that that's, in fact, God's prerogative. He's right and good to tell us how we are to worship him. Because on our own, as John Calvin would say, our hearts are idol factories. We, we have a seemingly insatiable need to add to what God requires to do things that we think will be acceptable or things that make us feel like we're really worshiping him well. But not only does God prohibit any false worship, he also so rightly demands all true worship. First and foremost, he's the only proper recipient of our worship. Every, everything about creation is less than God. He's, he's made it. He's created all of it. And, and God alone is the only thing that is beyond that creation. And we, we have in this command an emphasis on that distinction, the creator versus the creation itself. Look back with me uh, in verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself a, an idol or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. What, what, 
what's he talking about there? Why, why does he need to say anything beyond or in any likeness of anything? That, that pretty much covers all, all things, right? So there, there are two things here that, that are, I think are of note. First is that he uses poetic language here. That this parallelism, this triplet of, of things, heaven above, the earth beneath, and the, and the water underneath. And it's, it's not just any poetic language. It's poetic language specifically picked up from Genesis and the creation account. That, that these are the three realms, if you will, of creation. That in everything, in God making everything that exists, he did that through making heaven and then earth and then the water as those three spheres, and then he filled each of those. He filled the heavens above with all the... the the birds and all the things that fly. He fills the earth with all of the, the, the things of, of earth, and he fills the waters beneath with, with all the creatures therein. It, it's like we talk when we say something like from A to Z or from soup to nuts. It, we're talking about the whole meal. Right? In, in all of those things, what he's referring to is everything that he's made, and he's emphasizing that what you guys are doing is stupid me included, in that when we take something from creation that didn't get there by itself, but had to be created by the creator, by taking something from creation and then worshiping it, it's created. Why worship some created thing instead of the creator? And, And it's not even like you're worshiping the greatest thing of all creation, you're worshiping something from just one-third of the created. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. I I love how John Frame uh, develops this even further in talking about how we are the only things in creation that are created in the image of God. And and so what this is, is saying as well is not only are we worshiping something that's less than God, duh, we're worshiping something that's less than us. Like, how does that make any sense? But understanding these things and, and the poetry, and, and what we tend to do is when, when we've got something that's official, when we go to the, the courthouse, right, and, and we get something that's official, a marriage license, a birth certificate, a, you know, some document, a deed, anything like that, Right? As we get more serious, our documents tend to get more linear. Right? I, I, it, 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 just in studying for this over the last several months, it's gotten me to just, I can't stand things that are, are representing the Ten Commandments. And, and we see them all over the place where it's, it's you know, a, a plaque or, or something, and it's got them numbered. Right? Here's commandment one, here's commandment two, here's commandment three. Uh, and, and it gives you, the, you know, you may not even be able to read the commandments, but you can see the, the Roman numerals, right? Because, you know, God used Roman numerals. No. So the way that we actually find these ten words is not a list. But that's how we in the West say this is important, right? If something's really important, it's a list. Even better if it's a list that only lawyers can understand. And, and that's because we, we make it very, very literal. Where that's not what God does. That's because it's not the Eastern mindset. When they were getting serious about something, they would sing! You go, what? I don't know if you've ever had that experience watching a musical. Right? And, and there's this great story that's going along, and then they interrupt the story for a song. And you go, what, what are you doing? We're expressing something important. Because an Eastern way of thinking, the more important it is, the more you engage art, the more you engage song and poetry and beauty. Because beauty is truth. And so as God is, is underlining, right? They didn't have underlining. They didn't have bold typeset or italics. But they had poetry. 
They, they had parallelism. It's the way of saying, don't miss this. This is the good stuff. This is the beautiful stuff. Why? Because it's true. It, it's not a rigid rule to have to follow because otherwise you'll get zapped. No, this is true because following these things is the way of life. And so Yahweh rightly demands all worship because he's worthy of all worship and nothing else is. And so we find this echo of Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28. Why would you worship something from creation when the creator is right here? delighting in your worship of him rightly. And so the hard truth that we've got to deal with is that God will only accept true worship as he commands it. As God, that's his prerogative. He's designed proper worship for individuals, for families, and even for gathered services like this. And, and these three spheres of individual and family and, and gathered worship also reflect his holiness and, and the way that we are whole beings made in his image. That yes, we're, we're made to have the, the list and the things linearly outlined, but we're also made to appreciate and enjoy the beauty and wonder of all these things. It's left and right brain. It's east and west. It's all of these things together. But we only get how that works if we're willing to submit ourselves to how God demands that we worship him. He rightly demands our exclusive worship. And he says that he deserves that because he's a jealous God. And immediately, the, the shields go up. And so you may have difficulty hearing that God is a jealous God because you've experienced the horror of sinful jealousy. Jealousy that's motivated not by affection and commitment, but by imperfection and insecurity. The, the jealous spouse, whether it's the husband or wife, that, that is not just rightly saying, no, you are to be mine exclusively, but invents and comes up with all kinds of things that, that weren't anything of unfaithfulness. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. What God is saying is, is that he's a jealous God in that he demands the proper exclusivity between himself as God and us as his people. That it's not good if a husband and wife decide they're going to have an open relationship. That, that's not good. There needs to be a proper desire and demand that if you're married to me, you're not going with someone else. And this is what God is getting at. And, and I should say... In terms of the structure of the, of the passage, most uh, Reformed scholars hold that, that these parts, uh, starting with, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am your, uh, your God, am a jealous God, that that's, that's dealing not just with the second command here, but also with the first and the second together. As, as I said, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And so he gives this jealousy, this proper godly jealousy, as, as the rationale there of why we're not to have other gods or to make idols. But then he goes on to say that because of this, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Again, that's one piece. The other side of that is also by showing steadfast love to thousands. And what I want you to see is the emphasis of that comparison is contrast. It has those who hate me on one side and those who love me and keep my commandments. And along with that contrast, it is that there is a 
element of that is, that is multi-generational. And that is not that, that God is holding the children responsible for the sins of their parents. How do we know that? We know that because God specifically deals with that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So what is it that he's saying here? He's saying that if you raise your children in an environment, in a family, where you hate God, that's going to have effect on those kids. And, and that that effect can be multi-generational. It's not just to the second generation, but he specifically says here to the third and fourth generations. That, that you have no idea how destructive your sin is. That's the point of what he's getting at. And that as destructive as sin is, that it can even spill over into the third and fourth generation, God's grace is so much greater. While, while he says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, what does he do with those who, who love him and keep his commandments? He shows them steadfast love to thousands of generations. Now, let me just put that in perspective for you. Okay? Say a generation is 40 years, 10 generations, 400 years, between current and the Mayflower. That's the, the time that you're talking about, 10 generations. 100 generations is not 400 years, but 4,000 years. Right? So between now and before Abraham, okay? 100 generations. What's 1,000, just 1,000 generations? Not 400 or 4,000, but 40,000 years. And he says not just that I will extend my loving kindness to a thousand, but to thousands of generations. Not just 40,000 years. But the idea here is infinite. It is to thousands of generations. And that's, that's what he does in saving us, isn't it? He, he pulls us out of the families, whether a, a church-going godly family by his grace, we might have come from that. Or he might have pulled, plucked us out of a family that hated him. Maybe actively, but maybe just passively. Ignored him. And he draws us out. And that, that grace is so overflowing. That grace is so of such a magnitude that its effect is for thousands of generations. What's the, the, the song of, of um, sorry, just went out of my brain. That, that we will be praising Christ for millennia upon millennia. That there will be no end to our praise of this God who shows steadfast love to thousands of generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. And again and again, we see this brought into the commandments here of the connection between love and obedience. It's, it's not just obey, shut up and just do it. No, it's, it's to love him is to obey him. Yahweh rightly demands all true worship. And he does that throughout generations. Last thing is that we see Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. We are made as image bearers, and we already talked about that to some degree. But, but in all of these things, what we find is, is that God has made us in a unique way to demonstrate his character. And so it only makes sense that we would live according to that character. And that's what these commandments are all about. That we would love him enough to worship him as he deserves. We are image bearers of God, and yet that image has been broken. That in our, in our humanity's fall, that way in which we reflect God's character has become distorted. It's, it's like a mirror that's become shattered. Have you ever looked at a mirror that's, that's shattered? And it's got, you know, it's like the, the carnival kind of 
game, right, where you've got those, those sorts of things. It, it just looks grotesque. That, that that's the way that our image-bearing of God has been distorted. And so Christ came as the perfect image-bearer. He came perfectly sinless with his image of God intact in his humanity and in his deity. And he comes representing God to all creation. And we couldn't stand him. We collectively of humanity. Sure, we liked it when he was healing people. Oh, that's great. Oh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then the more that we understand that he is king, and that means that we have to submit to him. No, no, no. Crucify him. And so he goes to the cross to restore our broken image. That's, that's why he came and lived a perfect life, demonstrating God's grace. That's why he died a sacrificial death on the cross, is purchasing our redemption. That's why he rose from the dead, declaring defeat over death once and for all. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. And so God prohibits the worship of any idol because it's an affront to Christ. In, in Exodus, as he's saying, no, no, don't make any idol to help you in your worship. I have made an image. Christ will come. Fully God, fully man. And so anything else is an affront to Christ. If, if, if you were to, to go home and say, oh, honey, I love you so much. And, and sometimes you're not right here. So I got this Barbie doll. You know, Barbie's big right now because the, the the movie. And, and so I got this Barbie doll so that when you're not here, I can just show you how much I love you by, by looking at this Barbie. I say, what are you, nuts? Give me that Barbie. Right? It, it's not affection that you're showing your wife by looking at the Barbie. And it is God, the Father, who says, I'm going to send the perfect image in Jesus Christ. And so looking at anything else with a whiff of worship is sacrilege. And not only that, it will destroy you. There's this fantastic uh, author on, on worship, uh, Adele uh, Berlin, who she makes this uh, statement, and I think it's so, so insightful. She says, we become what we worship. Whatever it is that we lift up, whatever it is that we identify with, that we put our hope in, that we put our trust in, Whatever that thing is, we will become like it. And God actually agrees. He says in several of the prophets, you're, you're putting your hope in something that's lifeless. And what that will actually do to you is make you lifeless. Worshiping Christ, the giver of life, the one who's conquered death, worshiping Christ gives us life. It refreshes the soul. It makes us come more alive. But when we chase our other idols, it brings us death, destruction. It makes us destitute. And just like those lifeless idols. You know my favorite time at a wedding? I've gotten a chance, uh, privilege as a pastor, to conduct many weddings. My favorite part of the wedding is when I'm standing up here with the groom. And there's a moment in the service when the bride appears. And every time, it is, I mean, it just always makes me cry. When you see the bridegroom turn and gaze upon his bride. There's nothing more beautiful 
There's, there's nothing more astonishing than that this woman has agreed to spend her life with me for us to share everything together. And you see him just light up. And there's nothing more deadening than that same husband clicking on a pornographic site. And all of that lit up joy is shame. Death. Do you understand God's command to not have any other gods before him and to not make any idols is good news. It's him protecting us. It's him saying, gaze on Christ. Don't look at any lesser things. Look to the author and perfecter of our faith and live. Live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the only image of the invisible God, that you perfectly reflect to us the Father. And as we learned in Sunday school this morning, also the Spirit, that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are everything that we need. And that in worshiping you, we are given life. Help us not only to receive that life, but to be those who joyfully give it away and show others and point others to you. Oh, Father, we pray that you would lead us, for we 